Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. Today I am here with Aaron I. Butler. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Aaron I. Butler is a two-time Emmy Award winning and three-time Ace Eddie Award nominated editor and producer. He is best known for editing on the second season of the HBO series Euphoria, for which he won a primetime Emmy other projects he has edited include the IMAX film Jesus is King for Kanye West and the film J.T. Leroy starring Kristen Stewart and Laura Dern, which was the closing night film at the Toronto Film Festival in 2018. But I want to start right at the beginning. I know that you went to Berkeley. Is that right? Like, how did yeah. you how did you get here? Give me the origin story. Storytelling for me was always kind of an escape. I had a bit of a challenging childhood growing up. Both of my parents struggled with addiction. And so we had a lot of good times. But we had a lot of bad times. Grew up on a little ranch with the sheep and pigs and chickens. And anytime I needed kind of an escape, I would head out, you know, into the far back field with the sheep and with my my dog Boonie, and I would make up stories in my head. And that was my escape. And that was a way for me to kind of be somewhere else. And and so I always loved stories. I love movies and I loved reading books. And I discovered Dungeons and Dragons, which was kind of an amazing way of creating stories and creating worlds. And my sort of first foray into storytelling actually went really badly. <laughs> so the, the first one was in seventh grade, I'm going to junior high school and I have an English class for the very first time. And we get our first assignment and it's write a creative story. And it can be a story about anything you want. And I was so excited because now for the first time, all of the kind of storytelling that I used to do in my head, I actually got to create something real now and 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 share it with the class. And, and I was so excited. So I came up with this story and I shared it with my parents and I did all these different drafts and I go and I turn it in the next day. Everybody gets their stories handed back to them with the grades on them. And the teacher doesn't hand mine back. And she says, see me after class. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. It's that good. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, I, and I'm kind of feeling bad about this because everybody else is getting to like read their stories. And I'm like, what, what is this about? So I go up after class. There's my story sitting on the desk. And, and she says, where did you copy this from? Oh, wow. And I was like, I didn't copy this. Like, I made this up. This is this is an original story. And what the story was, there was a, a rose growing outside of my bedroom window. And so I came up with like a Greek myth about where the where roses came from. So I came up with this story of this woman named Rose who was beautiful on the outside, but ugly on the inside. And she has this whole kind of adventure. But in the end, she kind of gets punished and... They say, like, do you want to be beautiful forever? And she's like, I do. And so they turn her into a rose, but they give her these sharp thorns so that everybody knows. Uh, and so it's like I, a reverse know, Beauty and the Beast kind of deal going on here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's like, where did you copy this from? She's like, there's no way you wrote this. This is college level writing. Wow. And, and she's like, I'm going to have to call your parents. And I'm like, please, please call them, call them because... <laughs> They saw all the different versions. They know that there's a rose outside of my window. Like they know that I made this up. And so she called them and they told her they've seen all the drafts that I made this up. I didn't copy it from anywhere, but I could kind of tell she never believed me. 
Really? You know? And she gave, me, she gave me an A plus and she handed back my paper, but I could just tell you, you can feel when somebody doesn't believe you. And, and the story ended up winning like first place at the county writing contest. And, but I was like, oh, I am not an artist. I am not, not a storyteller. It totally turned me off from that. And all through high school, from that point on, I would only write if I was forced to for a class. But every time I, I was forced to write, I would win the, the writing contest. There's a newspaper contest for an essay. And I'll be like, oh, I'll enter it for extra credit. And then I would right. win it. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> and it yeah. was just, and my teachers in high school, one of my teachers was like, oh my God, can I keep a copy of this poem that you wrote? And I was like, okay, I mean, I don't care. But then I discovered film. My dad had bought this little video camera and I started playing around with it and I started making videos and I totally fell in love with it. And so this was a way that it was like, oh, making videos is not writing. And so there, there was kind of a creative separation there where I could, it was like, oh, well, I, well I'm not a writer, but, but I can do this. Right. And, and so I made all these videos and, and then I went to uh, UC Berkeley and I'm studying pre-law, you know, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and these videos kind of had like a little bit of a cult following. Most of them were comedy, like really funny and kind of inappropriate. And they had kind of spread through the campus so much that one of my best friends, she was kind of my muse and she was like kind of the lead actress in all of these, my friend Rachel. And she came to visit me at Berkeley once. We're walking down Telegraph Avenue and a girl comes up to her and is like, you're the girl in the videos. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Like, She's like, what? She's like, how many people have you shown these to? And I'm like, what? It's viral. It has 50 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This was, this is obviously pre-internet. Right, right. So. Well, you look so young, man. You would, you would never know. That's awesome. Yeah, this was, uh, yeah. So let's see. This is probably back. This is probably back in 95, 94, 95. Dude, you look so young. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 47. <laughs> or just, yeah, yeah, freaking yeah. amazing, dude. What's your what is you got to after the podcast, you got to send me your skincare routine, whatever's going on. Yeah, it's I, so yeah. cool. <laughs> I, I love that, though, because it's like you have this natural talent. And I see so much of this people are messaging me at 25, 23. I'm 30 years old, and I haven't figured out my life yet. You know what I mean? And constantly in this sort of comparison trap. So I think that it's interesting to hear the talent was there, the storytelling was there, this unique skill set was there. And number one, that you didn't believe in yourself. And then number two, that it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it took probably a little bit longer than you might have thought it would be to have everything come right. after going to, so, going to school and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So what so what happens is so all all through college, I'm making all of these short films just for fun, just to entertain my friends. And I loved acting too. I was doing theater, acting in theater, taking acting classes. I loved that performance aspect. And I'd always been into music too, all through elementary and high school. I did band and choir and, and I was actually first chair. And so I was doing the theater, making shorts, but I still thought I'm going to be a lawyer. So my senior year at Berkeley comes along and I'm showing one of my latest short films to my roommate, Scott. And Scott is like, Aaron, he's like, why are you going to law school? You love making these videos and everybody loves your videos. Like, why don't you go to film school? And I was like, can I? It literally had never occurred to me. Like I wow. never even thought that, that I could have a career doing that. And so, so I thought, well, look, my senior year at Berkeley, I'll get like an internship at a production company and just try it out and see, see if I like it. Mm -hmm. And so... I sent my resume to 20 different production companies 
and didn't hear back from a single one. <laughs> and because I wasn't a film student, I had never taken a film class. And so they just kind of, they just probably saw my resume and added it to the pile. And so I was about to give up. There was, I was going to make one last call. So in Berkeley itself, there's a film studio and a music studio called, it's the Saul Zantz Film Center and a fantasy studios. So Saul Zantz, he produced The English Patient, Amadeus, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Unbearable Lightness of Being, amazing, amazing producer. And he had this incredible little film center there. Walter Murch was there all the time and really famous, one of the, probably the most famous editor of all time and really incredible little place. And so I was just, I, I, this was my last call I, and I ended up calling a documentary company and, and luckily... <laughs> If I, if the secretary had picked up and I had dropped my resume off, she would have just added it to the pile. That would have been it. I would have given up and I would have gone to law school. But instead, the secretary was out at lunch and one of the producers answered the phone and she had gone to Berkeley. And she was like, oh, you, you're going to Berkeley. Oh, great. So we kind of chat. We were chatting it up. And I was like, hey, can I just come in for an informational interview? She said, sure, come on in. So I go in. I'm sitting in the waiting room and this guy comes by and he's like, hey, you want to grab lunch? And I'm like, sure. So what I didn't know was this is the owner of the company. He thought I had been hired. (laughs) I hadn't even been interviewed. Wow. So I have lunch with this guy. And what I didn't know at the time was his name is Bill Jersey. This guy had been nominated for two Academy Awards and had won an Emmy and had been nominated for all these different Emmys. And was considered kind of one of the grandfathers of like verite documentary filmmaking. I had no idea who he was. So we go to lunch. We kind of hit it off. I show him one of my short films. And he was like, you're an artist. And no one had ever called me that before. And I was like, wow. And, And he was like would you like to do a film with me? He's like, I'm about to do this documentary. And he's like, he's like, I love your visual style. I think you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, yes, please. That's crazy. (laughs) And so you were talking about people. Is it, when is it too late to get started? He's a good example. So Bill, he didn't make, you know, this, this is a guy who's been nominated for two Academy Awards. He didn't make his first film until he was in his (laughs) forties. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. And look at his career, and his career was absolutely incredible. So it's never too late. He was one of those people too, where it took him a long time to actually get kind of on his path. And so, so he became this incredible mentor to me and taught me so much. And I ended up doing shooting and helping him direct. And, and then I edited for the first time, saw an Avid for the first time, and I was shooting on Betacam and saw that for the first time. And I taught myself how to use all the equipment, taught myself how to use an Avid. And we did this short film together and it ended up winning first place in the New York festivals and first place at the U.S. International Festival. And then it got acquired by PBS. So it got broadcast on PBS. And up until that, my parents were kind of like, oh, like. How's uh, the lawyer thing going? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But then when they saw my name on TV for the first time, it was like, oh, maybe this is something real. When I graduated from Berkeley, the lead editor and cam- main camera person at the company moved to New York and I got offered the job. That's awesome. I love and that so, so much. I didn't end up going to law school and I didn't end up going to film school either. Bill became this incredible mentor to me, taught me so much about, about shooting, about directing, about editing, and, and really the most important thing about storytelling, like how to tell a story. And he, yeah, he was incredible. And uh, he became my film school, basically. So 
that's so how it powerful. All got, that's how it all got started. <laughs> that's perfect. And I'm so happy that you just said that because my very last episode that I recorded, my last solo episode, I was just talking about how you just leave school, you're freaking out. No one's getting back that whole conundrum of how do you get experience without having it? Yeah. And then the next thing that I said was one of the biggest things that I've learned in my journey is you never know who you're talking to. Go back yeah. and listen to what I said. And then if you don't believe me, come back to this episode and you'll hear it perfectly. I want to jump ahead a little bit in the story here. My friends will get the pitchforks out if I don't talk to you about <laughs> euphoria. And I feel like we should have that labyrinth, like that, oh, that thing, but we don't have the budget for it. <laughs> totally, totally. But, you know, I might just put it in there. Just so we, here it is now. But how did the euphoria thing come to be? Were you just hanging out and then Sam Levinson walked by and was like, hey, you want to go, <laughs> go get lunch somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> how, did it, how did it come up? How did you get involved in this? Yeah, so you heard the beginning of my story. So I had sort of fallen into documentaries and I really fell in love with documentary storytelling because as an editor, you're really a writer. It's like, here's 100 hours of footage now. Find the story, find the main character. You're creating scenes line by line. You're creating all the story arcs. So it's a very specific kind of editing, but it's it's the most challenging kind of editing because you are the writer and the editor. So I did that for many, many, many years. And, and then eventually I got my first scripted indie feature, which was a movie called I Am Michael. And then that got into Sundance. And at that point, I had been nominated for one Emmy and one Eddie. <laughs> and wow. the an agent saw my movie at Sundance and called me up and was like, hey, I see that you're not represented. And I'm familiar. I've seen some of your documentaries. And I thought you did an amazing job on this movie. I'd love to represent you. So Fast forward all these years later, so I end up being represented by her at Gersh, and I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between documentaries and these scripted indie features, but I've been trying to get into TV, and there's a lot of pigeonholing in Hollywood, and no one would even give me an interview in TV. Not even an interview. I And at that point, at that point, when I started pursuing TV, I had been nominated for four Emmys and I had won one and had been nominated for a couple of Eddies. I've had three movies at Sundance, uh, projects at TIFF and Berlin and Venice. No one in TV would even give me an interview. And so... That's crazy. Yeah. So what changed was Kanye, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, I know it's a little bit hard to talk about now because... Right. Uh, listen, I, I'm a DJ. I've had to like rework sets with the. I, totally I know, yeah. I know. So what happened was, I, I get this call one night, and Kanye is is doing this IMAX movie, and they basically for the four editors, I think four editors before me had been fired off the project, and they had like two weeks to get the movie into IMAX theaters in 40 countries, and and it would basically like they needed somebody to go in and kind of save the day. So I went in and basically saved the day. Kanye loved my work. He was like, you're such an artist and loved all my ideas. And I finished the film and it premiered and everybody was happy. And and at that point, my my husband, who is also an editor, who also he he just edited The Last of Us. Coming up next in the show. <laughs> yeah. Aaron's husband. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we have the two editor household, which is always a little weird. You but... guys are crushing it but keep yeah. going you know? <laughs> we're having yeah we had a very good, good. Very, it was a very, what's that old frank sinatra song it was a very good year yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. we both so, had a very good year yeah uh, 
so he's always worked in scripted TV and he was like trying to help me get into TV. And, and so he was like, Hey, why don't you talk to the TV people at your agency? Cause my agent was more of a feature person. And so I thought, well, that's a good idea. So, so I call him agency. And so, and this is just a couple of weeks after the Kanye project went down and, and I get a meeting and I look up who I'm getting the meeting with. And it turns out it's the senior vice president of the agency. And I'm like, wow, like, how did I get a meeting with her? Like, she's the lead agent. Right. And she seems way too big for me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> The imposter I, syndrome just has stayed with you all along. I, I like. know, I of course, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. So I go and I meet with her. And the first thing she says is she's like, I want to hear all about the how you saved the Kanye project. <laughs> she works with these huge celebrities all the time. And so she wants to know how did it work? And she's really interested in kind of like the process and the psychology of working with these big stars and big personalities. So I tell her the whole story. She's very impressed about how I pulled it off. And and then she asked me, she's like, so what do you want to do next? And I'm like, I'm trying to get into TV. I can't even get an interview. And no one will even give me an interview. And she's like, hmm, interesting. So the meeting ends. And a couple months later, I get this voicemail. And it's the senior vice president and my agent. And they're like, hey, Aaron, give us a call. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Sounds good. Yeah. So I give them a call and they're like, oh, hey, have you ever heard of the show Euphoria? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, I am very familiar because <laughs> my husband and I had watched the first season and we're totally obsessed. Like, and this is what happens when you have like a two editor household. When we watch things and we're like, oh, my God, stop. How did they do that? We will watch a scene over and over and over analyzing how are they cutting? When are they cutting? Why are they cutting? How are they using sound? How are they using music? How are they, what are the kind of principles that they're following? And, and Euphoria had such this amazing editorial style. It just totally blew me away. And the, um, the carnival scene season, that's season one, oh, right? When they're with the car, yeah, with the, that's with the, the yeah, shot. episode four. It's one of the most brilliant episodes of television, I think, of all time. And I'm like, yes, I'm a huge fan. We watched it again and again. We were analyzing it. We were just both so impressed. And they were like, we got you an interview. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, thank you so much. This is why you have an agent, is to open doors that you would never have access to. And, and what it turns out is that Euphoria, when they were looking for editors, they weren't looking for your average TV editor, because they see Euphoria as something different. They wanted somebody with documentary experience. They wanted somebody with indie film experience. They wanted somebody who has a cinematic point of view, a creative outside the box point of view. All these other TV series wouldn't take a chance on me because I hadn't done TV before, but Euphoria wasn't looking for a TV editor. And that's where I got my chance. And so, I went and had an interview with Julio Perez, who is the, the, he's the supervising editor on Euphoria. And he's like Sam Levinson's right-hand guy. They've worked together for years and years. So he was doing the hiring. And he is the one who has created this whole incredible editorial style. He was the one who edited that Carnival episode. And Coming so up I next was on the podcast. Now. <laughs> I know. So I We're was winding up the whole season yeah. today. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so I was fanboy fanboying out with him, just being able to interview with him. Like, God, I'm such a fan of your work. And so, but we just, Me you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But my my agents at Gersh, they were really doing kind of matchmaking because they had said they were like, look, you and Julio are going to hit it off like and 
And sure enough, I went and interviewed with Julio and it was like, we talked for two and a half hours straight. We were instant. We were like friends. It felt like we were friends, like almost instantaneously. Like we fit so perfectly together. And on a show like Euphoria, it's, it's not just about having the experience. It's not just about having the talent. They work in such a team way and so collaboratively, all of the editors together. It's like, if your personality doesn't fit, it's never going to work. It doesn't matter how good an editor you are. It's like, when the personality clicks, then that's what can take the creativity to the next level. And so I ended up getting the job. <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. That's freaking awesome. Season two, episode two. Yeah. So there's this crazy development where Cassie and Nate are growing closer. Rue gets closer with Elliot and then Kat feels like there's something is missing in the relationship and there's all like this tension that's building, right? You're helping to create that tension and everyone is watching every single episode. It's not if, it's when. When does she find out? And how does she find out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, excuse my French, how fucking scary was it for you as an editor? And I know it's a team and it takes a village and all that stuff. Your tasks with that moment. Are you freaking out when you get the information? What's the experience like? And feel free to go deep and give me some behind the scenes. Give me that yeah. clip I'm looking for. Come on, Aaron. <laughs> when you start a TV series, typically you'll get assigned certain episodes. And all that we knew when they started, basically, you know, Julio is the supervising editor. So he's going to do the first episode. And that was basically all we knew. And then it was just a matter of like timing. So the timing worked out that out of the three editors, you know, Laura Zempel was the third editor. She was, and she worked on the first season, but she was on a project that, that ran over. So she ended up being the third editor on. So she got episode three. So I ended up being the second editor on and I got episode two. And so that in the beginning, that's all we knew. It was one, two, and three. And it was actually the first four we, we shot together in a block. So the first four episodes. And then Julio was going to edit four. But then it was kind of a question mark who was going to do five and six. And and it just happened to be footage starts rolling in. And when it turned out that Laura got, got too busy. And so I ended up getting the, the started getting the footage for episode five. And then it looked like, oh, five is going to be me. And I and was like, oh, shit. And I was worried and I was worried because I knew I was like, oh, the internet was coming for you. They were ready. Like, this is a huge episode yeah. and it's very complicated. And, you know, most of the episodes shoot in about two weeks and episode five, they shot for a whole month. So right. because it was it's such this complex, crazy episode where Rue is running through town and it was a hard it was a really, really hard episode because they shot so much for that episode and because it was so important. And so it was just a huge amount of material to go through. And, you know, and some of it ended up being so long. Like, so for instance, the very first scene of, of episode five is the, is the first part of the intervention where her family intervenes with Jules and Elliot in the house. And so that's this big, crazy scene. And then they, they take her to the hospital in the car, but then she finds out they're taking her to rehab. So she jumps out of the car. So that's about, and then you get the main title. So that's like the first 15 minutes of the episode. But when I put together the first cut of that 15 minutes, it was 28 minutes long. It wasn't working. 
there it was like all the pieces were there but we knew you know and when we all watched it through and when sam watched it through and we're, we're very collaborative so julio watches through you know i'll put a cut together and i'll show julio and we'll talk it through we knew that it wasn't going to be able to work at that length and this is where my documentary experience comes way in handy because they're like okay aaron the 28 minutes isn't working fix it <laughs> make it work right. and so I took that 28 minutes down to 15 and it would, ju- and that's when it really popped. Yeah. And, but the whole episode had a lot of these different challenges. Sam, one of his notes, when he watched the first pass that I did, he was like, look, this episode is not like other Euphoria episodes. A lot of Euphoria episodes, the camera work is perfect and the moves are all perfect. And, and he's like, look, I don't want episode five to be like that. Episode five, I want it to be from Rue's point of view. And Rue is going through withdrawal. Things should be dirty. Things should be messy. Things should be chaotic. Things should be unexpected. Like he wanted it to have a way more raw feel. And even with the film, the film that we shot, he was like, we're like, let's leave in more of the scratches and more of the dust. Let's make it, let's not make it clean and pretty because this isn't clean and pretty. And so I actually did a whole second pass. He was like, the only thing that matters is emotion. He's like, I don't care about the dialogue. He's like, you can cut whatever dialogue you want. He's like, I don't care about perfect camera moves. In fact, it's like, if a camera move has more emotion, that's what I want, even if it's imperfect. He was like, emotion is all that matters. And so that was my guiding principle on the episode. And every little choice I made was was seen through a lens of, is this going to create the most emotion? I love that. I wasn't really planning on talking about this, but it was May 14th. I'm like three years sober. My my wife, yeah, uh, yeah. thank you. I appreciate it. My wife kind of actively kept euphoria away from me. and But then I got to a place like where I'm like, I'm good. I got a good support group, the whole nine yards. And she's like, listen, I've been waiting to show you this, but have I got a show for you? And when I watched it, it was so funny because she was like, this show is like crazy, right? And for me, it's funny that you say that, and it and it's it almost gives me chills that you're here that and I get to tell you this, but yeah. it felt like a documentary. Like yeah. it was a documentary of my life. Some of the critique of season two was that there wasn't as much dialogue. As somebody who lived that experience, I think that you guys really nailed the chaos of it. It's almost as if like the dialogue is like secondary to like the feeling. Absolutely. And on the show, one of the things that we always go for is we are looking for that feeling. We want to capture the feeling of what it's like to go through these experiences. And oftentimes, if you shoot it in a literal way, if the dialogue is literal, you actually don't capture the feeling as much as if you do it in maybe a kind of surreal way or an unreal way or a more cinematic way. If you're right. using visuals, if you're using sound, if you're using music, like we show, are, don't tell people show, don't tell. Exactly. We are way <laughs> more interested in having you who have had this experience feel what it's like to go. That's way more important to us. And, and we, and I got so much feedback because of that, especially on episode five, literally hundreds of Twitter messages of like, this is the most realistic thing I have seen on addiction ever. And it was, and it was interesting because my, actually my brother, his girlfriend is a therapist and she focuses a lot on, on young people and almost every single one of her young clients 
was watching Euphoria and was like, oh, it's so real that it was triggering a lot of them. And so part of it is, this is the Euphoria way. <laughs> but another part of it is is also what I brought to it. So my parents were both drug addicts. So when I was a kid, like I, I, like you said, I lived through a lot of this. So what happens is I'll get all the footage will come in, you know, for that first opening scene in the house when the intervention is happening. I may have 12 takes of Zendaya doing this scene. And so when I'm watching through each take, I watch through, I watch through, and then, oh, there'll be one take where I'll be like, ooh, this one hurts me. Mm. A method actor will go back into their past and they will feel the emotions that they've experienced in their life and they'll bring it into the moment when they're when they're acting in a scene. And so I do the same thing with editing. I'm going back to all the moments of my childhood and I'm reliving all of this stuff. The pain of being a family member and watching your watching a, a loved one go crazy and the addiction and the ma manipulation and the meanness and the violence and and I even had a moment growing up, you know, there's that moment where Rue is banging on the door. I had a moment where we had a restraining order against my mom and my dad had started to get sober. My dad ended up getting sober and he kind of saved us. Unfortunately, my mom never did and, and ended up killing her. And but at that time, my dad was at an, an Narcotics Anonymous meeting and we were home alone. We had a restraining order against my mom. And my mom comes banging on the door and wow. it's like, my dad tells me, my dad is like, if if she shows up, you have to call the police. And it's like, you're a kid and you have to call the police on your mom. It's mm. like, it's the worst feeling. But so then here comes this episode and there's this moment of banging on the door. And I'm like, and I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this. It's like, I live this. I know this inside and out. And so, and that's what I used as my compass in this whole episode all of every time, every take that I watch, I wa I'm looking inside me and I'm watching my emotional reaction to every single line, every single moment. And, and that's how I judged it. And that's how I built that episode. That's incredible. Some people say that euphoria is too fast. It's like as somebody who lived it, sometimes I think it's not fast enough or it's not, <laughs> it's not blurry enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> the moment where she's dancing around with the pillow and like the sister's home or whatever. That, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You relate. You can relate. Oh, yeah. totally. No one can tell. And all of a sudden people are like, are you good, bro? Oh, the anxiety. Right. With that because it's, yeah. Right. It's that we, and that's what we're trying to do on the show is we're trying to put you inside that moment. So you're seeing from inside her head. It's not literally realistic, but you're seeing like her with the pillow is this like beautiful, musical, magical moment inside her head. Right. Right. But, but from the outside, she looks insane. Yeah. For sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talked about before about like the pacing of everything, but what techniques do you use to maximize the impact of editing? I mean, it always, 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 always comes back to emotion. So it's like when I'm reading through a script for the first time, when the dailies, which is the footage starts rolling in and I'm watching through things, I'm looking for emotion, you know, first and foremost. And generally speaking, there's going to be a moment in the scene that is the turning point. And this is where the emotion shifts from usually either positive to negative or negative to positive or a combination. And, and sometimes a scene will have multiple of these turning points. Now, 
when I, so that's what I start when I'm going through, that's what I start looking for. I'm like, oh, this is the most important moment in the scene. If this moment doesn't work, the whole scene doesn't work. And so first, that's what I start with. And then I start building from there. It's like, okay, so what is this moment really about? What does this moment mean to the characters who are in this scene? What are each of them feeling? And whose point of view should this scene be from? Right. Because really, I have all these different angles. I have all these different takes. And sometimes I have improv of all these different new lines that I can use. So what do I use? I have to decide that myself for the first cut. So it's looking at that turning point. And then it's like, how does that turning point fit in the bigger picture story? What are the things that come before that lead to this turning point? And how is this turning point going to affect everything that comes after this? And that's usually what I'll do is I'll usually I start editing the scene from that turning point first. So it's like, I know this is the most important moment. I'm going to build that first. And if I can build that and the emotion is perfect and it's going to grab the audience and everything has changed perfectly, then I can start building outwards from that. I can start building downstream. I can start building backwards. And again, what I'll do usually is when, I, when I'm going through a scene and watching the footage, anything that makes me feel or grabs me, I'll be like, oh, like that is a really interesting camera angle. Ooh, like that take, like, ooh, oh, this take makes me laugh. Like, that's right. hilarious. Anytime I feel emotion, whether it's from a visual, whether it's from a sound that's made, whether it's from a line of dialogue, whether it's from the actor, the actress, the way they said it, the way, no matter what it is, it can be even a costume thing. It's like, wow, the, the, the moment that you get this reveal of this costume, like, made me feel something. All of these little things, take after take after take, the same thing over and over again. Anytime I feel something, what I do is in, the, in my sequence, I'm very visual and kind of hands-on. I pull it up onto a higher track. So I pull up all the stuff that makes me feel something. So then when I start to go and edit the scene, again, I start with the most important, what, what is this scene actually about? Why is this important? How is this going to affect everything that came before? How is this going to affect everything downstream? And then I go through all those little moments because that's what's going to make this scene sing. But it's like, ooh, there's a little bit of humor here. Oh, there's a little bit of, oh, this is supposed to be a happy moment. But there's a little tinge of sadness and I, that makes me feel something more. And it's like, oh, this camera angle is gorgeous. It makes me feel a little bit of awe or, or oh, this like close up is really intimate or it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like that's good. So each of these little pieces goes in and it's, and literally, and this is one of our principles on Euphoria. It's like, Every single edit must be motivated. Every single choice, every single sound design choice that we make, every single music choice, every single music edit, where it begins, where it ends, what lyric is there, every single second, really, we look at and we go over and we talk about and we craft to make sure that every single moment is as emotional and powerful and creative and surprising as possible. Crush that answer. Absolutely freaking crush <laughs> that answer. You know, you mentioned about music. And again, people will get the pitchforks out if I don't mention this. And again, yeah. I feel like we should do that. Oh, but we can't do it. <laughs> the budget. I'm going to do it. We'll see if it gets pulled. Labyrinth, the original soundtrack. Yeah. And then there's all this great music that comes along with it. My, my personal favorite, again, I'm telling you, I go deep with these things. The ADHD yeah. is a, a blessing and a curse, but it's a blessing in this regard. There's that, you know, I can be found 
sitting here all alone. That one random Elvis cover. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant moments of music and euphoria. The person who steals the show is Labyrinth. What is it like when you're editing with the music and how do they know where to put that? Is that after you? Is that before you? Is that in coordination with you? And yeah, how do you go about making those decisions? Yeah, it starts with me and and many times ends with me. Wow. <laughs> ends awesome. with the other. Yeah, so, so I'll talk about the two different kinds of music we have, which is we have the composer, we have Labyrinth, and then we have what we call needle drops, even though right. it's not actually a needle anymore. But needle drop is just a, a song right. that already exists that we're putting in the show. Right. So like, so yeah, so with the needle drops, when we when we put in a song in the show, like we are insanely critical. And a lot of the music actually comes from Sam. So Sam will actually write in a lot of the songs and it will that's where it starts. And a lot of the music comes from the supervising editor, Julio Perez, that I mentioned before. These two are like, musical geniuses they know every genre they know every it's like they've heard everything their their knowledge of music is so deep and that's really the why music is so important in euphoria and so like we we play a game basically on euphoria which is king of the, we play king of the hill with songs and so what happens is a song will go in and then everybody will try to beat it <laughs> Wow. So, and we have a music. Can I super- be involved in this? Come on, just one time. Just give me one scene when you guys are in a jam. This is my, <laughs> this is literally my goal in life. I'll give you one example. So, from episode two, there's this there's this scene where Maddie is she's babysitting for this rich woman. Mm-hmm. When she puts the the kid to bed, she sneaks into the rich woman's closet and she tries on all her fancy clothes, and and this moment, they basically, they kind of ran out of time when they were when they were shooting it. And they just kind of set up two cameras and were just kind of rolling. And, and it was like, look, which sometimes happens. It's like you just run out of time and maybe we'll have to shoot it again another day. Or, and so she's basically in this footage. She's just run, running between the two rooms and trying on clothes and stuff. But one thing that I noticed was there were these, I think, three or four moments. And this is out of like an hour of footage. And these are literally just like, a couple of seconds long where Maddie or the actress playing Maddie, she's pretending to be the woman. So she's waving, she's talking on the phone, she's doing these little things. And I was like, Oh, that's what this moment is about. This is not about her trying on fancy clothes. This is about trying on this rich woman's life. This is the life she wants. That's what this moment is about. So, you know, so I cut this thing together and then I need a song for this, right? So on Euphoria, unless there's a scripted song, the editors will usually have the first stab at the song. So what I had done when I had started Euphoria, because I knew the music was so, so, so important, I created a fresh Spotify account, just completely blank. And I added into the Spotify account every song that had ever been on Euphoria, all the Labyrinth songs and every single Needle Drop song that had ever that had been in season one. And then I would just be like, "Okay, play me some give me some music in the vein of the things that I like, basically every single one of the songs. So I'm like in the shower and like it's playing music and this Judy Garland song comes on and I'm like. And the, and the song is, you're going to love me. That's like the chorus of the song. And I was like, 
oh, wait a second. And I'm like, this is a little weird. Like there's not usually like show tunes in Euphoria, but sometimes that's good because it's unexpected. It's different. But this song felt so perfect because in this moment, Maddie is talking to the mirror when trying on these clothes. She's saying, you're going to love me to the world. But she's also, her character arc is, and you find this out later in the season, that she's not as confident as you think. She's pretending to be confident. Right. And so she's also telling herself, you're going to love me, not just other people. So I was like, and this is always our principle on Euphoria. When you pick a song, it has to have multiple layers of meaning. Right. It can't be too literal. It can't be too expected. There's got to be a story. There's got to be some poetry. There's got to be some symbolism. It's got to have layers. There's, It's got to be playing on multiple ways. So I'm like, I think this is kind of cool. So I throw in the Judy Garland song and then King of the Hill begins. Right. <laughs> so Sam tries to beat it. He's sending in these songs and I'm cutting them in. We're trying. Julio is trying to beat it. Julio's putting in songs, trying to beat it. Jen Malone, our music supervisor, she's sending all these songs. Just- and so we went through and I, I probably tried 35, 40 different tracks and we play them and we watch them with the scene and nobody could beat it. it uh-huh. That Judy. That Judy Garland song fits so perfect. And so they licensed it. And that's what's in the episode. <laughs> Have you ever had a time where like you fought tooth and nail to get the song and you're fighting over it and then there's for whatever reason, like it's too much money or, I mean, I'm, I would imagine that HBO is a pretty lucrative operation going on there, but have you ever had a time where somebody denied oh, yeah. it or? Oh yeah, it does happen. It does happen. And oh. we had an interesting, yeah, we had an interesting moment with this in, in, I think it was episode seven or eight. And we actually had put in a a John Williams cue from one of his really early kind of like unknown films, like when he way, way early in his career. And when we went to try to license it, the corporate people or whatever were like, oh, Euphoria, no, 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 no. We have like a reputation. Right. So, so we were like, well, let's just, let's approach John directly. So Sam like wrote John a letter And then we hear back, John is like, oh my gosh, Euphoria is so great. Like we need, we need shows that are pushing boundaries and, and thinking outside the box. And he was like, yes, you can license my, my song. Like John Williams from Star Wars, that guy? Yes. So there's a John Williams. I just want to double check. John Williams could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. The Star Wars John Williams. So (laughs) So I figured as much. I don't want to like, yeah. (laughs) Most people will never know. So I think there's a track. I think it's at the beginning of episode eight or, or it's the beginning of episode seven or eight. And it the show like opens with a John with John Williams score. I don't think people will never know unless you like Shazammed it. You'd be like, oh my god, it's John Williams. But sometimes you do get denied, and you got to and you got to go with the next best because sometimes people won't allow it, or sometimes it is totally too expensive. But yeah, okay. So that's talking about needle drop songs. So, but working with Labyrinth. So Labyrinth. He's amazing. And the way that he works on the show is very unusual. So what he does is he just creates music. So he will create all these songs. And usually at the beginning of the season, he'll start with basically a bunch of demos. So he'll be like, oh, here's 15 demos of like interesting sounds, interesting melodies. And what we'll do is we'll start to play with them. So we'll take those. And what he does, is he gives us the stems. And so what a music stem is, is... Each, basically, each instrument in the song will be broken out in a separate layer. And then, so let's say there'll be like, there's 15 different instruments in a song. Basically, I can take that song, 
and and cut in all the stems. So it'll be 15 tracks. So you'll ha I'll have my picture and sound up here. I'll have my 15 tracks. And then I can actually go in, I'll turn on the waveforms. And and then and Labyrinth allows us to basically remix and recompose his music. So we will go in and I'll be like, oh, at the beginning of the scene, it's just the bass note. And right. then I'll, and then it's like the emotion shifts. I bring in the the synth here. And then when the when things are peaking, I'm going to bring in the voice at the very end. But I'm the one who's deciding when when the music comes in, when it goes out, when it starts, when it ends. And and it's crazy because like on on episode two, actually, I just I had put in all of this remixed labyrinth music from the first season. And I was just thinking it was going to be temp. But but about 85 percent of it stayed because they liked wow. it. so much. That's and, amazing. Yeah. And it was wild because there was even one moment we were in a spotting session with Labyrinth. The spotting session is where you go through the temp music and you're like, oh, can you do something here, Lab? Or, you know, where you discuss each cue. And there was mo one moment where Labyrinth was like, what what cue are you using here? And I'm like, Labyrinth, that's you. <laughs> oh, wow. But I had remixed it and and changed it so much that he didn't even recognize it. <laughs> that's fucking badass, dude. That's, yeah. that's amazing. So a lot of the stuff you'll see and, and, and a lot of the things that I did, for instance, near the end of episode two. So there's this scene in in Fezco's convenience store. Cal, the dad, shows up and he's got a gun in his pocket. And there's this kind of tense scene where he's walking around the convenience store. And it's, it's kind of like almost like a Western kind of like shootout. I get the footage for this convenience store scene. And, and Sam is like... I want this to feel like an old Western shootout. And I was like, okay, so what do I do? I go and watch Westerns for inspiration. So I'm watching the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And like, and there's the big shootout scene where it's like, doo -doo -doo -doo, you know, and, and the camera's cutting around to all the eyes right. and everything. I'm like, ah, oh. so I'm absorbing all of this. And what they did with the music too was really interesting in that scene. In the in good bad good and the bad and the ugly, it's like it starts really spare and really open, and it's just these kind of single notes. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, and it's really kind of open and spare, and it's and it makes it really tense. And I was like, okay, so I went into the first season, and so this is Cal, the dad with the gun walking around. I went to the first season and I grabbed all of the Cal labyrinth tracks from the mm. first. And I broke them all into pieces and I took some of the sounds and there was this one sound where it was like, and I was like, oh, that's perfect. So I would take <laughs> that one sound and I would, and I would edit it in. It just, this is just one stem in, yes. in one of Cal's songs. And I, and then I mixed and matched, I think it was two or three different Cal labyrinth songs from different scenes. And I interwove them to create this like feel. And if you go back and look at, watch that scene again, you listen to the music. I'm the one who's putting in all of those little pieces. It was not scored that way. And those are from Cal's songs. Cause I was like, oh, this will be perfect. I'm going to use Cal's music wow. to represent his danger and his tension. Like, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, by the way, like an absolute banger from Labyrinth that's completely underrated is Nate growing up. Well, in the beginning of episode two, there's that whole montage where you're in his head because he's been beat up mm -hmm. and he was in the hospital, you know? And so there's all these things. They they take him to the hospital and all these things. And and if you listen, I'm, I use a lot of that, those Nate 
themes and songs from there, but broken up into their simpler kind of forms in that whole, you know, opening montage with him. I did recognize sort of the elation and the the sort of like epic tone, like that classic euphoria. The first time people are watching, they're like, ooh, like what? What? Like they, they hear like that high pitched thing I've been joking about today, which I think is like a reflection of ego. And I think that euphoria really sort of tackles that that notion, right? Of like heightened ego, high pitched synths. In contrast, this vision that Nate has where he's getting the stitches and his like eyes all bloody and the prosthetics and everything. This terrible upbringing, this chaotic thing. And then this dream of suburban bliss sitting out by the pool. <laughs> and the difference between what people think they want versus like what they actually want or what they portray that they want. Right. And the music does that and creates that contrast. And that's like what we would say is like one of the principles of euphoria is that like we want everything to be creating la mm. layers of story, layers of emotion. And we use the sound, we use the visuals, we use the characters, we use the music to create these layers of story. And like this idea that it's such a human thing inside our brains like the way human brains work and they there's kind of like a metaphor that they sometimes use for it which is that there's kind of like a king or queen in your brain that really has all of the power mm, and then no. you kind of have a different part of the brain is kind of like the press secretary <laughs> For and sure. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. The 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 press secretary is the outward facing. So the king or the queen demands is like, this is what I want. This is what I need. And it's this pure emotion and desire and want. And then the press secretary is like, oh, like right. <laughs> the press secretary has to deal with that. Yes. So there's this inward facing and outward facing. The press secretary is like running around trying to pretend to everybody, everything's fine. I'm doing fine. Everything on the inside's fine. I'm this, I am this. But on the inside, they are something totally different. And we all have a version of this. And so I think in Euphoria, we try to, we are using cinema we're using film and we're using sound and we're using character and we're using the storytelling and we're using the music to create that feeling of that dissonance because that's such a major part of what it means to be human and nate nate is like dreaming of cassie but who he really wants is jewels right <laughs> you know? and yeah. so you see these flashes of jewels in there and the flashes of jewels actually were not scripted that was something that i added in later Dude, I thought fucking awesome. Because yeah. <laughs> I thought that was like, and, and then I asked Sam, I was like, oh, what, what if we put jewels in here? He's like, yes, yes, yes. And we went and grabbed a bunch of footage that wasn't used from the first season. We brought it in and we used it as part of the flashbacks. And it was like, so yeah, we're trying to use this cinematic medium to represent what it really means to be human. Not in a literal way, in a feeling way, in an emotional way. So yes, you are right. That is what we were trying to go Nailed for. it. I nailed it. It's amazing. Anyway, where can people find you online? We're putting a bow on this. You're coming back on the show. I demand it. We're going to be best friends. <laughs> awesome, next, awesome. So yeah, hear about Kanye next time. We're going we're to get to the bottom of it. Yes, I got Exactly. So yeah, I'm basically just search for me, Aaron I. Butler, at, at everything. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm on all of them. So take your pick and please send me messages. If you have questions, I'm, I'm happy to answer. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> all right. I'll see you, buddy. Thank awesome. you so much. Thanks, Rob.